Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you enjoy Unchained or Unconfirmed, my other podcast, which also features a weekly news recap after every interview, please give us a top rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or futures trading, Kraken is the place for you. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. What's the best way to spend crypto? The MCO Visa card lets you spend anywhere Visa is accepted, including your coffee shop or the Apple Store, all with up to 5% back. Download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours now. Today's guest is Kyle Samani, Managing Partner at Multicoin Capital. Welcome, Kyle. Hey, Laura. Good to be back on the show. You wrote a couple of really interesting blog posts last week that refer to some of the events on March 12th, which we'll call Black Thursday for listeners who, um, <laughs> because we're going to be referencing events throughout that day, uh, throughout the show. And on that day, due to panic over the coronavirus and its effect on the economy, and amid a much wider sell-off, the crypto markets crashed in two legs, as you wrote about in one of your blog posts. And you say in the first blog post that in the second leg, the market structure of the crypto markets broke. So why don't you just kind of broadly describe the events of that day in crypto? So uh, on just for clarity, so if you look at kind of the like coin market cap, uh, you'll see a lot of the, the events are reported in the UTC time. And actually the first leg down happened on the 12th and the second leg down happened on the 13th. In the U.S., it was basically morning and evening. And so I'm just going to refer to the two legs as, as morning and evening, uh, just for simplicity. So um, the first leg down happened at about 5 a.m. Central Time, 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the 12th. We don't know with 100% certainty what caused it, but definitely someone who held a lot of Bitcoin started selling their Bitcoin. The two best theories are, one, that there, someone was you know, de-risking because they were con- kind of concerned about global macro and the as a result of the coronavirus. And the second theory is that the plus token scammers from kind of last summer uh, sold off Bitcoin and, and presumably they wanted to do that in the guise of it kind of being aligned with the coronavirus. Uh, they had a chance to see the U.S. futures markets, you know, limit down the night before. Uh, and so they, they kind of assumed that everyone would rightfully just assume that the broader markets were the cause. So those are the two best theories. It feels like a high probability that one of those is correct. There is a possible third theory, or there are other possible theories, but um, none of them that I think make a ton of sense. And so it's very likely that one of those two things cost the first leg down on the 12th. 
Um, that moved Bitcoin from about 7,500 to about 5,800 or so uh, over the course of about an hour. Uh, so it was a very large and very fast move. Uh, and then the kind of prices stabilized throughout the day. I can tell you from our side, you know, we work with a lot of other market participants, exchanges, market makers, desks and stuff. Uh, and obviously the day for all of those guys was really hectic. And a, lot, a, a number of people got margin called, meaning that they had posted collateral to borrow some assets. Um, the value of the collateral, the value of, of the assets they borrowed decreased such that the value of the collateral was now higher than the value of the assets that were borrowed. Um, and so, uh, assuming the value of the assets borrowed was higher than the value of the collateral. Uh, and so those lenders were, you know, trying to work with, with the borrowers to figure out how to either get more collateral or repay the loans. Um, and so that kind of back and forth went between a lot of lenders over the course of the day. Uh, and what appears to be the case is that some number of borrowers were unable to either post more collateral or repay the loans. And so the lenders in the evening started liquidating collateral, and that's what caused the second leg down. Unfortunately, during the second leg down, then we kind of started hitting some mechanical problems in the crypto markets. And that's kind of why I said the market structure broke. Yeah, and you have a really great dissection of how the crypto markets have these unique characteristics that kind of played into what happened there. So I, I don't know if you can remember all nine of them, but you laid out nine different ways um, that they, you know, are kind of distinct from traditional markets or or have their own unique characteristics. So can you at least lay out the major ones, if not all? Sure. So the most unique thing about crypto. Uh, is that there are a lot of trading venues where people trade and they all trade the same assets, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, right, uh, Ripple, et cetera. In traditional markets, by and large, you can more or less think of like, let's say equities as like there being a single exchange where equities are traded. In FX markets, there are a handful of trading venues, like the primarily major, a few major banks and dealers around the world, like three or four kind of major venues where people trade FX. But uh, in crypto, there's about 10 or so major venues where people trade. Um, and although the underlying you know, assets are, are core, the same, Bitcoin, Ethereum, those things, the way they're traded is very different. So you've got spot markets, you've got futures markets, you've got perpetual swaps, which are a form of a futures market, and you've got options, those being the major ones. And then you know, different exchanges have different, they trade different products. So not all the exchanges trade all the products. For example, Coinbase only trades spot. They don't have any derivatives. If you look at BitMEX, BitMEX only trades futures and perps. Um, Deribit really just dominates uh, options trading. And so you've got all these different venues and people trading different products. And of course, as the underlying price of Bitcoin changes, the, the, the price of these different derivatives products is also changing in real time. And so what, what's really, in, and then on top of that, you've got different kinds of traders who cannot access certain venues, right? So if, if you just say like, I want to sell or buy $10 million of Bitcoin, let's just say, like the not generally speaking, the, the not sensible thing to do would be to go to a single exchange and like just eat through the order book on that exchange. The the right thing to do, and, and there's a lot of kind of people who formally know how to do best execution on this stuff, uh, is you know, you look at the order books across all of these exchanges and you'd write pick off the orders off of those off of all of those exchanges. You'd space it out over time and do those kinds of things. But that's assuming you can access all of the order books in crypto. Uh, a substantial majority of traders in the space actually cannot access all of the order books or even some of the order books. Some people can only access one order book. Um, well, for example, a lot of Chinese retail traders basically only trade on Huobi. A lot of people who don't want to KYC only trade on BitMEX. And so you've got people who structurally do not want to spread their trades across lots of venues. And so um, as a result of kind of all of these, you know, unique dynamics of like different products being traded, 
across different venues and the fact that, that people are not you know, doing quote unquote best, best, best execution and, and kind of taking liquidity across all different venues, um, you end up with pretty meaningful price deviations between those venues. And 99% of the time, those price deviations are close to zero or like maybe they get a little bit beyond the make or taker fees, but, but not much. And arbitragers will kind of just arbitrage those. And like, that's fine. But what happened on the 12th was that those prices started getting so out of whack um, arbitragers started having to shuttle money between the exchanges because, like, the, let's say the price was high on one exchange and low on the other, but let's say the, the the money they had on each exchange was was backwards, so they had to basically flip the positioning of like the Bitcoin, let's say the USDT that they had across those exchanges. Well, in order to do that, they have to use the blockchains and you know withdraw from one exchange and deposit to another exchange, and that takes time. And so um, on the twelfth. Like that started happening in such free, high frequency that basically the Bitcoin blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain became ent- entirely congested. So people were using up all of the block space on both chains. And so gas fees started to go up. The network started to become congested. Transactions started to started not going through. And so that was like a big problem, just making the whole system more difficult to use. On top of that, because the price went down, a lot of miners started turning off their mining machines. Uh, because the, you know the revenue was decreasing and, and the cost of electricity is fixed, and so it actually became unprofitable for them to keep on mining. And so, as when they do that, that means the rate at which new blocks are coming out is slowing down, which is obviously decreases the overall throughput of each blockchain. And so, those two things kind of happening at once basically made it so that people could not move, you know, arbitragers could not move money between exchanges uh, quickly enough, and so the prices started to really meaningfully deviate between those exchanges. On top of that, then uh, things got even. Oh, I'll, I'll pause there. Like that was already a lot. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what you're describing just sounds like one of those terrible feedbacks feedback loops. Like it just was essentially a downward spiral. You know, the problem was um, being exacerbated at every step of the way. But one thing that I wanted to ask about because I was a little bit confused when I read this in your blog post. Um, you know, one BTC is one BTC, and whether or not you choose to sell it at four thousand or eight thousand or twelve thousand or whatever it is, is presumably under the miner's control. So I, I kind of don't necessarily understand why it is that they would just turn off their mining equipment immediately at that second. Because, um, yeah, I, I maybe I'm, you know, I just don't understand how they run their business, but I feel like, um, yeah, I could see an argument for being like, oh, well, you know, they could just hang on to it until the price goes back up. Right. So so they can. And, and certainly miners historically have very much speculated on the price of Bitcoin. As the derivatives markets have matured, specifically the futures markets and the options markets, miners have become a lot. And they, you know, a lot of miners have gotten blown out like in 2018 as the market crashed. And so they've become a lot more, a lot less willing to take on price risk of Bitcoin. And so they're, fortunately now they can hedge this to a large degree, uh, where they can say, Hey, my cost of mining Bitcoin is 5,000. I can get a guaranteed lock-in price of 7,000. And so I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to take on the fact that maybe the price falls to 6,000 or 5,000 or 4,000. And so a lot of miners are becoming a lot more rational about that. Um, and so, and, but, but if you're, so, so that, that has started to happen. However, there are a lot of miners who still are not hedged. And so for them, right, if you're a miner, let's say your cost of mining Bitcoin is 6,000. And as the price of Bitcoin you know, hits 6,000, maybe you keep on mining. But like maybe you say, hey, at 5,500, right, am I going to mine for a 10% loss? Like if it hits 5,000, am I going to mine for, uh, you know, almost 20% loss? 17 or 18, what, you know, whatever that math comes out to be. Uh, and a lot of people start to say, hey, this just isn't worth it. Like 
I'll just wait for the price to come back up before I start mining. Why would I mine now and have a guaranteed loss? And so that that started happening on the 12th. And then one other thing I wanted to ask about was you did talk about how there were obviously increased transactions plus higher gas fees and transaction fees. And so why was it that those higher fees were not enough to offset that, um, the, you know, the decline in the value of the block reward? Yeah. So I haven't looked at the, the, the mat, the ratio recently, but right. If you just say a miner, uh, makes hundred percent of revenue, I think right now is something like 90 to 95% of minor revenue kind of generically speaking comes from block rewards and only five to 10% comes from transaction fees. I don't remember mm-hmm. the, the exact math breakdown, but it's, it's something to that effect. And so like fees going up like three or four X, like doesn't, it doesn't offset enough to like really move the needle. Right. Okay. All right. So, um, then, uh, you know, in the beginning, you talked about how uh, part of the reason for the first um, sell-off was perhaps, you know, uh, coronavirus or or maybe even the plus token. But then um, w- for the second one, that was, uh, what was the cause of that again? Was that the miners li- turning off the... Yeah, so, so the cause of the selling was that there were lenders who had lent out assets and the borrowers became insolvent or were close to becoming insolvent. And so the lender started liquidating the collateral of the borrowers. What's interesting is there's two different types of ways to get leverage in crypto. There's You can do it on exchange using BitMEX or Binance or any of the derivatives exchanges. I'll let you take on leverage. Uh, and if you follow any of the Twitter accounts, like uh, whale, I think one's called Whale Calls. I think another one is called BitMEX Rect. There's probably other ones for the other exchanges. And basically, right, if you follow those accounts, they'll start tweeting out, you know, this 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 number of contracts liquidated at this price. That's they're just like bots that tweet that out. So those people are taking on leverage on the exchange, and those exchanges have rules and say, "Hey, look, if you're levered long, either short or either you're levered long or levered short. If the price moves against you, there is some threshold at which the, the exchanges will just they will take your collateral and they will just start market selling your collateral, um, right, to to make sure that you stay solvent. And so that happens all programmatically, and the exchanges handle that. Um, the other way to take on leverage is to basically call someone, in this case, a lender. So think people like Genesis or BlockFi or Matrixport or those kinds of companies. And those kinds of companies say, hey, you know, if you want to get a yield on your Bitcoin, deposit into Bitcoin with me and I'll give you a yield like a bank. And if you want to borrow some Bitcoin, you know, call me and I'll lend you some Bitcoin. Uh, and so those guys started to, uh, you know, so the people who borrowed Bitcoin and ETH and whatever else they had borrowed uh, uh, and probably dollars in this case, those people started to become insolvent. And so in those cases, the lenders don't typically just programmatically market sell uh, on the underlying exchanges. They always prefer not to liquidate people's collateral. And so they were I, quite literally calling up, you know, the people who borrowed and saying, hey, Bob, hey, Joe, hey, Jim, you know, you're close to being insolvent. You know, either you need to deposit more collateral or we're going to liquidate your collateral or liquidate your collateral. Uh, and so you know, it sounds like they had about 12 hours or so of, you know, back and forth and dialogue. And obviously things did not get resolved in that 12 hour period. Uh, and so the lenders, you know, contractually had to start liquidating that collateral. And so that's what caused the second leg down. Okay. And so like on this chart that you have on your blog post, there's, what does this look like? Maybe a period of about 12 hours or so where there does not appear to be very many liquidations at all. It's sort of flat after the first big spike in the morning. And then, um, then it continues to go up. Is that kind of what happened there? Like what, why, why was there this period where it doesn't look like there were any liquidations? 
Correct. So that's what happened during that for that 12 hour period was the, the lenders were reaching out to the borrowers saying, Hey guys, you know, here's your balances. Here's your, you know, solvency ratios and, and whatever. Uh, you know, you need to either deposit more collateral or you need to return the loans. Uh, and, you know, the, the contracts between the lenders and the borrowers, uh, you know, they have, they have language saying, Hey, we're going to give you this much notice. If you don't respond in six hours or four hours, then we have the right to liquidate your collateral. Um, once you respond, you know, there's, there's like a whole bunch of provisions in those contracts about these kinds of situations, um, that very formally define, right? Like how quickly things need to get resolved. Uh, in this case, it seems like it was about 12 hours. It was kind of about the amount of time in, the, in whichever contracts were written. Uh, and obviously things did not get resolved. And so then at that point, the lenders legally, you know, had, had the right to claim the collateral. And then in order to ensure that their depositors stayed solvent, that they had to liquidate that collateral. Wow. Okay. So there was another thing here and I was trying to, uh, there was a lot of speculation about this online. Um, but basically, so there was one point where, um, so in your blog post, you said that there, there were only $20 million worth of bids left on the entire BitMEX order book and over $200 million in long positions that uh, needed to be liquidated. And you say that that could have crashed the price of BTC to zero briefly. But that what happened was that BitMEX ended up going down for maintenance. And I did see some people speculating that BitMEX had kind of gone offline to save the price of Bitcoin. Like, what do you think happened there? And also, how does this play into what you were saying before about the Bitcoin blockchain being backlogged? Yeah, so there's a few kind of com compounding variables here. So all of this happened during the second leg down, which was in the evening in the US. So once the lender started liquidating collateral, the, obviously the prices started, Bitcoin started going down more. Um, at that point, there were people who had leverage on BitMEX. I mean, people had leverage on all of the derivatives exchanges, but on BitMEX specifically, uh, there was more people who were, who were levered long. And so those, those liquidations started to cascade. And the problem was that over the course of the day, people had already done a lot of arbitragers because of the, the, the price movements in the first half of the day. And so a lot of market makers had already moved collateral off of BitMEX to take advantage of arbitrage, you know, on other venues. Um, and so the amount of collateral available on BitMEX was lower than normal. Uh, on top of that, uh, the, so the, the, on top of that, you know, the blockchain was slowing down because, uh, you know, the miners were turning their machines off and because there were just so many transactions that were shuttling around. And so, uh, th that was, and, and so is the, the price of sort of cascading down on BitMEX, uh, what happened was that market makers basically stopped showing up. Um, this is actually common that like in general, when volatility is increased, market makers widen their spreads. In general, like market makers, their business mandate is every single day, don't lose money. Uh, and like if, if there's a day where market makers lose money, like that's a very bad day for them. And, and those, all those businesses are run with like very strict risk controls on making sure that they're not taking on too much risk and not Quoting spreads too tight so that they lose money. And so on days like, you know, on March 12th, right, like those are days that the volatility is really high and they don't want to lose money. And a lot of market makers may have gotten, may have ended up losing money in the first half of the day. And so they were already just very risk off and scared. And a lot of market makers just said, hey, this volatility is picking up. This is getting crazy. We don't know what's going on. Um, and so a lot of market makers just stopped providing liquidity entirely. And so uh, as the price of, of Bitcoin started cascading down um, in the evening, market makers just didn't show up to provide liquidity on BitMEX and people keep getting liquidated. There's a few more. And, and, and it wasn't not only that there were obviously not all market makers disappeared, but, you know, some percentage did. Uh, and so even the ones that wanted to provide liquidity, 
uh, at that point, they just didn't have collateral on the exchange. And so they were trying to shuttle collateral from you know, Coinbase, Binance, Huobi, wherever else they had collateral. They were trying to send it to BitMEX, but the blockchain was slow. And so they couldn't get collateral to BitMEX, and so they couldn't actually provide liquidity. Um, and so as a result of all of that, there ended up being a point where there were $200 million of outstanding liquidations that needed to occur, but there was only $20 million of orders on the bid side of the book. And so, I, I mean, had the engine, you know, had they not turned the system off or, or had it not gone down, I, I mean, the price of Bitcoin would have gone to zero. Yeah. And so if that would have happened on BitMEX, like what would have happened to the price of Bitcoin more broadly across the market? I mean, nothing like that would have only survived for like one or two minutes, three minutes. Like people were obviously trying to send money to Bitcoin and there is a price, right? Like if, sorry. Yeah. Right. Like let's say Bitcoin is trading for $500 on BitMEX and $4,000 on Coinbase. Like there are people who are going to say, right, like when the price discrepancy is that large, like I don't care if I, I lose everything and BitMEX blows up in the next five minutes, I'm willing to risk that to try and make, you know, 8x in five minutes, right? And like there are people who have that risk tolerance and have the sophistication to do all that stuff. So as the price discrepancy gets wider, it obviously encourages more people to, to show up. And so at some point they would have shown up, but like the, the spike on BitMEX, you know, it could have printed zero. And that's just like a very bad look, obviously. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Just so much craziness. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss how all of this played out in DeFi and also look at what different on-chain technologies could be solutions or preventative measures to these issues. But first, we're going to get a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Why should you get an MCO Visa card from Crypto.com? First, it's a beautiful metal card. You can top up the card with crypto and spend anywhere Visa is accepted. You also get up to 5% back every time you spend on all spending, including your morning coffee, gas, or even a new phone. You know they'll pay for your Spotify and Netflix, too. You'll love the unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates if you travel a lot. There are so many cool perks loaded in one card. Download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours now. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep and their fee structure is great with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. 
To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N dot com. Back to my conversation with Kyle Samani. So let's now talk about how these market failures on Black Friday, Black Thursday played out in DeFi. You wrote in your first blog post that DeFi, quote, outright failed, <laughs> which is um, interesting phrasing to use. So what happened there? And let's uh, start the story with MakerDAO. Yeah, so of the major DeFi protocols, the one that definitely had the most problems um, on, on March 12th was Maker. So for those that don't know, Maker is a way to get leverage, uh, like everything else in crypto. Um, getting leverage <laughs> is generally like the, the top thing people like to do. They like to trade with leverage. Uh, in the case of Maker, you post Ethereum or ETH as collateral, uh, and you withdraw DAI as a form of debt. And the, the people who do that are generally doing so for one reason, which is they want to go margin-long or levered-long ETH. And so they're taking that DAI and selling it for ETH. All right, so they're getting levered exposure to the price of Ethereum. So uh, on the 12th, during the first leg down, price leg down, Bitcoin and Ethereum both crashed pretty hard. As a result of that, a lot of those MakerDAO collaterals became under-collateralized. Uh, and so people started liquidating those positions. On traditional centralized exchanges like BitMEX, uh, the exchange automatically runs those liquidations and they just will market sell or market buy and they'll just, you know, eat orders on the order book, right, to, to execute those transactions. In the case of MakerDAO, there is no order book, right, and it's not a centralized exchange. And so in those systems, anyone who this term is kind of generically used as a keeper, keepers run some software. That software was written by the MakerDAO team. Um, and that, that software basically just looks, you know, at the price of ETH, looks at, um, you know, the collateralization of all of the outstanding loans. Uh, and it says, hey, you know, if anyone is under collateralized, you can go liquidate them and you get some reward for doing so. Uh, it's like a few percentage points or something. And so there's a, a rational motivation for people to do that. So that, that system broke down in kind of a couple different ways, uh, two to three different ways on the third, on the Thursday, the 12th. Uh, so the first is that the Ethereum network became, uh, fully congested. And so, you know, blocks like pe- uh, gas fees were going up and, and blocks were full. The, the keeper software was not written. Uh, to actually dynamically adjust gas prices. It, it was basically using some setting to just say, hey, set the gas fee at, uh, I'm just going to say one penny for simplicity. But like the market wasn't clearing transactions with anything below, let's say, 10 cents. Uh, and so like the people who were running the keeper software, that the out-of-the-box keeper software, were trying to liquidate you know, liquidate collateral and were, were just not doing so because the software wasn't configured to do this. Uh, some very smart person realized this, realized what was happening. And so they went into the system and they just changed the parameters and they said, hey, just change the gas price and increase the gas price so that the transaction will get included, you know, the miners will include the transaction. Well, what that person realized is that the, the way that the liquidations work in Maker is that the, those are actually, um, they're collateral auctions. And so the idea is that, like there's $100 for sale, right? Like you can bid up to, let's say, $99 and then you'll get $100 and then you make $1 profit. Right. So the, what some guy realized, Hey, um, no one else's transactions are going through. So I can bid zero dollars and I can get a hundred dollars. Uh, and so some very smart person did that and collected, I think six million dollars or eight million dollars of ETH, um, over the course of, yeah, a couple or, hours. or I think the total was eight million, but at least one of them was maybe like 4.5. But anyway. Y- yeah. So, yeah. So, so someone made out with millions of dollars and paid effectively nothing for it. And so that was that was the first failure that happened. Now that's fixable. I mean, if the keeper software was written to dynamically adjust gas prices, that, that wouldn't have happened. So that's a pretty fixable problem. The second problem uh, was that 
liquidity, you, in order to run those liquidations, you need to ha- be able to, you have to uh, bid in those auctions with DAI. And so you need to have DAI. And, and it turns out that there weren't enough keepers who had enough liquidity, like had enough DAI on hand to actually engage in those auctions. And so the price of DAI went up to, I think, a dollar and 10 cents because people realized that like this was happening and we're buying DAI at any price to try and run this trade. So that's obviously a bad thing. You want the price of DAI to stay at about a dollar. So that was the second problem. The solution to that, oh, actually, I'll come back to the solution. Uh, and then the third problem was the oracles. So, right, it, the, the maker system needs to know the price of ETHUSD uh, in order to make sure the system is staying solvent. And if the price of ETHUSD falls too low, then, you know, the, the keepers can come and do the liquidations. Well, again, the Ethereum blockchain became 100% congested. And so the makers either were not configured to adjust their gas prices or they just chose not to submit transactions outright uh, because the price of ETH kept crashing. And so during the second leg down, when ETH touched, I think, $88 on Coinbase, when that happened, you know, the, 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 the last price that Maker reported that was formally incorporated in the system was about, I think, $101 or something like that. And it turns out there were a lot of, uh, of uh, vaults or CDPs in the Maker system that were going to get liquidated at $100. And so... Like the conspiracy theory is that the or the people running the oracles realized what was happening. They probably realized that hey, if this huge amount of collateral gets liquidated, those the people taking that ETH collateral may choose to sell it for dollars and cause the price of ETH to cascade further. Uh, remember, a, a couple of minutes ago, I was saying that you know in times of crazy volatility, market makers just stop showing up because they just don't know what's going on. And so you know, there's like when ETH was down at eighty eight dollars, or when Bitcoin was down at thirty eight hundred or four thousand. At those prices, there's very, very little liquidity. And so if someone's trying to market sell $5 million, $10 million of ETH, that's going to crash the price. Um, and of course, there were you know, other maker vaults with even lower, you know, price, like lower liquidation thresholds. And so it's very possible that ETH could have just cascaded down from 88. Like it, have the maker oracles you know, been reporting the price correctly, it's very possible that ETH could have cascaded from 88 down to 50 or 40 or $30 uh, because market makers just weren't showing up. And so those were kind of the three big problems uh, with DeFi that day. <laughs> you know, even though I it's read cr- your... It's crazy, Laura. It's yeah, crazy. I, <laughs> I was just going to say, even though I read your blog post before, my jaw is still like on the floor because, the, I mean, the thing about the oracles is it, like if the oracle really had just dipped $1 lower to $100, I mean, think about it. Like, and it, so I actually did not see um, much chatter about that, but w- were there any conspiracy theories about what happened there? Because it almost feels it, like in both instances, like things were manipulated. I mean, I look, so the people who run the maker oracles, um, the way it's designed is there are some people who are publicly disclosed and some people who are not publicly disclosed. Uh, and that's like a safety mechanism. I think it's actually a very smart design the maker team came up with. And I, I generally agree with it. Some of them, I, I don't remember all the participants off the top of my head, the ones that are publicly disclosed, but the maker team has them written down somewhere. But like, I think the zero X team has, you know, one of the keys, the maker team is one of the keys. I forget who else are the keys. Um, obviously even the people who are anonymous, who we don't know who they are, uh, obviously those people are vested in the interest of maker in the long run, right? Like they're not bothering to do this. And because like for fun and because they think maker is stupid, they're obviously doing this because they care. And presumably a lot of them own a lot of MKR. A lot of them also probably own a lot of ETH too. Uh, right. Like I think the probability of that is, is extremely high. And so, uh, I mean, it was very rational that they realized what was happening and said, oh my God, just stop. 
Um, We can't prove it. I'm not accusing them of anything. But on the surface, that is a very, very plausible explanation. Right, right. Listeners, we, we do not know the facts. We're speculating here. But but in terms of the um, other explanation, would that just be the congestion on the Ethereum blockchain? Correct. So that's the other theory is that it was just congested and the, and the software was not configured correctly. And the, the trend, you know, they weren't including the gas fees, um, you know, to actually get included in the blocks. Wow. Okay. All right. Um <laughs> So uh, let's let's now just talk about kind of, you know, let's just play through like a little hypothetical here. So if those liquidations had occurred at $100 as they were supposed to, what do you think would have happened next, particularly in terms of the whole maker system and then also the knock-on effects throughout DeFi? I mean, I think had, had the Oracle's, you know, reported the price down to $88, I think ETH would have traded down to probably 30 or 40, and that would have caused more liquidations. And it's very possible that 100% of the collateral in Maker could have been liquidated. Wow. I don't think I don't think Maker would have become insolvent in the sense that like the the uh, system would like break, like the contracts would have broken. I just think that you know 90 or 100% of the users would have gotten liquidated, and that would have you know outright shattered the confidence in the system. Yeah, well, except for the congestion on the blockchain, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then, so what about the rest of DeFi? So, I mean, yeah, there's interesting second-order impacts on the rest of DeFi. So DAI is collateral for a lot of other protocols. And so, for example, in Compound, right, you get some interesting effects. If, if um, a, a, ETH is collateral in a ton of other protocols. Um, so Compound, lend for me you know, BZX, DYDX, all these things. And so... Uh, had the price of ETH crashed, you know, really low, that would have caused cascading liquidations on other, you know, DeFi protocols, which would have probably further cascaded the price of ETH even lower, uh, which would have been bad. Uh, the price of DAI also, like, like as, as if if Maker started to become insolvent, the price of DAI either could have skyrocketed because like DAI would have been contracting, that's unclear, or the price of DAI could have crashed because people realized, oh my god, the system is insolvent. Uh, I don't and how those dynamics would have played out on you know a minute by minute basis is I don't know I don't think it's it's possible to know uh, but certainly there's a case where Dai could have become uh, you know started trading well below a dollar you could have traded at seventy cents or fifty cents or something um, and if that happened then a lot of the loans that are collateralized by Dai uh, you know also would have probably become insolvent which would have caused even more liquidations and so this would you know this already cascaded to some degree into other uh, protocols uh, uh, for example compounds. You know, Compound had a lot of liquidations firing, um, primarily because of ETH collateral being low, but uh, it could have caused, you know, just like like hundreds of millions of dollars or more liquidations could have occurred. All right. And actually, so one of at one point earlier when you were talking about how the die price had um, gone off its peg, you said you would talk about the solution to that later. Is that the USDC thing that MakerDAO adopted later on? Yes. So today, so so one of the core problems was that the price of, of DAI went up to $1.10 and it was very hard for people to run these uh, collateral auctions to actually buy the ETH collateral in the system. And so one of the problems was that people couldn't get DAI. And so um, today, in order to, to do that, uh, you have to you know deposit ETH and you have to effectively take on risk exposure. Like today, if you want to mint new DAI, you can do so at any time. But in order to do that, you need to be able to you have to be able to hold ETH, right, and and take on take on risk of, of ETH, a price of ETH. 
And a lot of market makers don't want to necessarily take on the, the price risk of holding ETH uh, in order to create more DAI. And so the idea here that is pretty clever is the maker team said, hey, look, we're going to allow anyone to create DAI using USDC as collateral. Um, obviously, USDC, the price is very stable at $1. I think it's never gone like more than a penny up, up or down. And so we're going to let anyone create DAI using USDC. And that's basically the solution then that you can deposit USDC, create DAI, and then, you know, run any of these auctions. And so you can, you know, effectively guarantee the price of DAI won't go up to $1.10 again. This obviously is controversial because it introduces, you know, trusted collateral into Maker, which has been a pretty controversial debate in that community for a while. I think the way that the Maker team has, has proposed this, and I think, I think it was voted in, uh, last week, uh, or, you know, uh, you know, it was voted in recently, uh, to, to be used is that they said, Hey, if you're going to borrow, deposit USDC and withdraw DAI, the interest rate is going to be really high. I think the interest rate is set at 20% or 25%. And so it's, it's designed to deter people from leaving large, like creating large amounts of DAI in the system and leaving it there for a long time because a 20% interest rate is really expensive. But of course, if you're just going to borrow it and re- repay the loan in five or 10 minutes, then you don't really care if the interest rate is 20%. And so they designed it very clever where they said, hey, look, we can solve a liquidity problem by allowing for this other form of collateral, but we just expect no one's going to leave these loans outstanding for more than you know a few minutes. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. I did see some people kind of upset about that, but I, I feel like what you just explained is, is kind of a good way to uh, take that criticism into account. Okay. So now let's go to the second uh, blog post that you wrote, which covered all these different solutions for potentially um, dealing with some of the market failures that we saw in uh, the crypto markets. So Obviously, you had talked about how one of the issues here is the fragmented markets of crypto, but um, you actually say in the second piece that you expect even more fragmentation. So why is that? And then what are some other potential ways to reduce the volatility without more consolidated trading? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look over the history of crypto, from I'd say up until second half of 2017, there were generally speaking no more than three to four major liquidity venues. All of those liquidity venues basically only traded spot. Those exchanges, for the most part, did not have any form of KYC. Coinbase, I think, did, and, and Kraken, they, like none of the other ones did. And so there was just a pretty limited number of venues. Obviously, the number of market participants was much smaller. The sophistication of market participants was much lower. You didn't have you know firms like Jump and DRW and Susquehanna in crypto at all at that time. Uh, well, come, come, DRW is there, but, but basically no one else. And so, uh, y- there was, um, the, the market was not very sophisticated. It was pretty limited. What happened in the second half of 17 is you got a lot more sophisticated exchanges show up. So Binance, uh, Binance showed up, BitMEX got really big, uh, Huobi and OK and all those guys started, started really growing and started adding a lot more sophisticated products. Um, meanwhile, you kind of got Chinese government cracking down on, uh, you know, like exchanges in China. And as a result of that, basically, Huobi, OK, and Binance are kind of sort of the only three exchanges that are allowed to function in China. Uh, and although I don't know this for fact, I think with a pretty high probability that if you try and launch a new exchange in China, the government will basically not let you, you know, get off the ground. Um, so then those three, you know, seem to have some sort of kind of just they were already here. And so they're, they're allowed to keep living, but no one's allowed to launch new exchanges. So those guys have kind of a, a kind of inherent you know, grandfather, basically, clause from the government's. So it's unlikely you're going to see new people show up there. Korea, basically the same thing kind of happened. And so, and then we, we've also started to see the institutionalization of the U.S. market with firms like CME and BACT getting into space. 
And so for all these reasons, right, the market structure has really started to, to uh, diverge where you have just more trading venues. Um, and people have meaningful network effects around each, those, those trading venues. There's obviously a lot of traders who either value KYC, don't want KYC. You know, they're Chinese retail, they're American institutions. And so as the markets matured, it's become very clear that there's different types of market participants who want different things. And that really supports um, structurally having lots of different exchanges. Uh, is it clear the answer is six versus eight versus 12 versus 18? I, I don't know. Um, that's a pretty wide range, but but it's clear that the market is going to support quite a few different exchanges um, structurally, at least until some of these types of parameters change. Uh, and so I don't expect, you know, anytime soon that like that market structure or dynamic is going is to change very much. And then another option you looked at was potentially disallowing extreme leverage, such as the 100x leverage that's allowed on BitMEX or the 125x leverage allowed on Binance. How would that help? How would, you know, disallowing that help? Um, and why do you think that this is likely not something that they'll actually implement? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they offer that much leverage because some people want that, right? They're not offering the product and like, like no one's using it. And so pe- people are trading with that much leverage. A lot of people are not trading with that much leverage, but some people are. Uh, and, and so, uh, and you know these these exchanges are unregulated, uh, and so you know, these these businesses, rightfully so, want to serve their customers. And if the customers say, "I want to trade with that much leverage," then the exchanges, you know, want to let them do that. So I think it's unlikely those exchanges will disallow it, basically because they are in their capitalists and they want to serve their customers. Um, the, the problem with that, unfortunately, is that if if you make it too easy to get too much leverage, you can very quickly get cascading liquidations, uh, and that's what we've seen happen time and time again. Um, they, the second leg down on BitMEX, you know, when there ended up being $200 million of liquidations on, you know, and only $20 million on the order book, uh, that, right, if you simply disallow leverage, let's say BitMEX capped leverage at 10x, uh, I'm fairly certain that that situation would have never come up. Right. And, but why do you think, oh, so you're saying that the, the exchanges won't uh, disallow it just because since there is consumer demand, customer demand, they, they'll just meet that demand? Correct. I mean, like crypto, like one of the rules of crypto is censorship resistance. If your customers want want it, then don't, you know, don't censor them, right? Like that's what they want. They know the risk. Anyone who trades with that much leverage knows what they're doing. They understand that it's very risky. And Let's so, hope they know what they're doing. <laughs> fair enough. Let's hope they know what they're doing. Um, one other option you looked at was circuit breakers. And I saw that your partner, Tushar Jane, tweeted that as a suggestion and his tweet got uh, you know a fair bit of pushback um eventually actually uh, in recent days Wobi did introduce a circuit breaker on its derivatives platform but do you it seemed like you believe that the exchanges are not likely to agree on a global circuit breaker provision so can you talk a little bit about how circuit breakers would help and why you think they're not probably going to be a big solution yeah. So if you look in traditional, if you look at like the New York Stock Exchange, for example, they have circuit breakers. I think the rule is if the price moves 7% or more in one day, then they'll, or in some period of time, then the circuit breakers kick in and they just freeze all the markets. Uh, that works really effectively when the underlying assets only trade on a single market. Uh, in this case, it's a US equities. But if you think about it, like if you institute, a, or let's just say that circuit breaker is 15 minutes, price of Bitcoin goes down 7% in 15 minutes. Well, those those terms because there's multiple venues at the table, those terms become very challenging. There is no like single price of Bitcoin at any moment in time. Uh, the price between all of the exchanges varies a little bit. Uh, you know, it's usually very small. It's usually a few basis points. 
But like in times of volatility, in times when the circuit breaker would be going off, like that's definitely not the case, right? Like the price of the exchanges is different. And so uh, you end up just creating, right? Like even if all the exchanges shake hands and say, yes, we'll all institute a 30 minute circuit breaker if the price movement is, you know, X in some number of minutes, um, it's still really hard because the circuit breakers are going to go on and off at different moments in time because each exchange has their own local price. And so what you end up doing is you end up just screwing a lot of market participants because of just like the market, market microstructure, both as certain exchanges shut down, right? And then others hopefully, hopefully follow. And then mm-hmm. also on the reverse side of when those exchanges, you know, light back up, right? And turn back on and start taking trades again because they would end up um, right, like turning on at different times. And so you have a lot of like very, very difficult problems with market microstructure um, and doing that in a fair way. Uh, and, and as a result, like someone's going to get hurt really, someone's going to make money from that, obviously, but someone is going to get hurt in what I would consider an unfair capacity because they just can't compete at that microstructure level. So logistically, it's it's very, very hard to do. Um, time, I mean, even just agreeing on notions of time, notions of price uh, and, and all those kinds of things. And obviously, volatility is going to be very high in these moments. And so, and then also there's just, there's a, a strong incentive to to break range. Let's say all the exchanges get together and shake hands and say, hey, we, you know, we're not going to do this. And then let's say, like, let's say there's 10 people and nine of them do it and one of them doesn't because that person says, great, I'm the only one open for business. So all of the trading has to happen on my exchange, right? I'm going to collect all the trading fees. Uh, and so you have a real tragedy of the commons where it's just, it's super difficult to get people on board. And even if you could get them on board, the actual micro structure of the implementation would be very, very, very hard. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So in the second essay, you actually also reviewed a whole bunch of different tech solutions for increasing throughput and lowering latency on the blockchain networks themselves. So what the, you started with some of the different technologies on the Bitcoin network. Why don't you talk about some of the different ones there and you know what your assessment is for their potential to help in these situations? Yeah, so the two major kind of theoretical proposals for improving the aggregate throughput and decreasing latency of Bitcoin transactions are Lightning Network and sidechains. And um, I, I think there's kind of structural problems with, with both. In the case of Lightning, right, like in order, you have to pre-collateralize all the channels and each channel is a bilateral channel between two parties. So today there are about 10 major venues. And so if you wanted to you know, have channels between all the exchanges, that's about 100 different channels between these folks. And, and that's 100 channels. And that means each, you know, each um Exchange has to collateralize, you know, uh, one side of that, and and so these exchanges would have to, you know, in terms of balance sheet management, it's pretty risky for them to say, hey, I'm going to pre-collateralize all these channels, and like I don't know if people are going to use this, I don't know which of of these exchanges my customers are going to want to send money to, um, and that really limits their flexibility because every Bitcoin that's in one channel cannot be used in another channel. Not only does it limit their flexibility in that way, it also limits their flexibility in terms of things like, let's say, loans. So a lot of the exchanges are starting to loan out assets. And so, you know, like how they think about risk of their own balance sheets as they have all these competing interests, it's really difficult for them to, to reason about this. Running a lightning node is expensive. It's risky because it's a, you know, it's a hot wallet. It's always online. Um, and it's very capitally inefficient because they don't know, you know, where customers are going to want to send the money. And so they have a large amount of overhead for maintaining this. Um, they know for a fact the customers are not going to use it the vast majority of the time. Uh, and, e- and then even if their customers did start using it, right, like people, you know, because the liquidity is divvied up across 100 different channels, uh, you, you know, there's going to be, uh, 
like like the arbitragers are going to very quickly exhaust that channel, and then that channel is going to become sitting there useless, right? Like one, okay, the first few people to arbitrage will get instant transactions, but then as people try and follow along that same corridor, then that channel gets exhausted, and so you end up having to you know recollateralize the the base kind of anyways. So I'm I'm pretty skeptical that Lightning is like a core solution to this problem. Um, it just creates a lot of mechanical complexity, uh, and you end up just breaking up li- basically liquidity between these different channels. Uh, so I'm skeptical there. The, and what the other side chains. Yeah. So the other major proposal for this is side chains. So you know, so I think the Blockstream team proposed side chains. I think as early as either 2013, if not 13, then definitely 2014. 14. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. And so it's been talked about for a long time. Today, the usage of side chains on Bitcoin is effectively zero. The only real sidechain out there is uh, the Liquid sidechain made by the Blockstream team. Liquid has been around for more than 12 months now and still has effectively no usage. And a handful of the major exchanges are signed up to use it, but they're not using it. And there's also quite a few missing people. I know Binance is missing, Coinbase is missing, Kraken is missing. I think a few others are missing too. And so, you know, you don't have everyone on board. Uh, Sidechains theoretically should solve the problem, but the exchanges are just choosing not to use it. Uh, And so the kind of natural question is, well, why? Exchanges have some reason to use sidechains and that it would very clearly help them save on gas fees on the blockchain. Um, you can bet that all of the exchanges paid a lot of gas fees on, uh, you know, on March 12th because the, you know, transaction costs were going up on the blockchains as, uh, networks became congested. And so they're actually incentivized to use something like liquid because it'll actually help them save money. I don't know for like, I haven't called all of the exchanges and like had, you know, one-on-one conversations with them and asked them the specific question. But as I, I think about it, the, the, the most obvious um, reason I think they don't use it is that the exchanges don't trust each other. Um, they are ex- brutally competitive, you know, brutal competitors. Um, and they generally don't like each other. Uh, and there's a lot of ways where like Liquid could backfire. So the way Liquid works is it's an 11 of 15 multisig. Uh, and so if any 11 of the exchanges collude, they can screw, you know, they can really hurt uh, one of the other exchanges. And so... You know, if I'm, let's say, Coinbase is a good example here, or CME or Bact, right? If I know a lot of the other people uh, on Liquid are, uh, you know, Asian exchanges that are unregulated, if those guys, you know, call each other and say, hey, we're just not going to send these coins to, to Coinbase, even though, they're, you know, the, they were supposed to, that we can, they can just choose not to, and they can just take them for themselves. And given the fact there's, like, almost no legal recourse, right, like, this would be totally uncharted territory, um, like, that gets really game theoretically dangerous, for, for Coinbase. And so I think that's a big reason why these exchanges haven't opted in to use it is because they just, they just don't trust each other. Uh, and like with an 11 to 15 configuration, it's, it's very easy to see how you get, you get hurt, not for a million dollars. I mean, you could get, you know, hurt out of $50 million. I mean, it could be a huge, huge loss. Wow. So do you see any way to solve these kinds of congestion issues, uh, you know, during times of high volatility like that on, on yeah. Bitcoin? I mean, yeah, on Bitcoin, I'm not really optimistic. Uh, I, I don't see how to do it on, on Bitcoin. I think with the, uh, the smart contract platforms that have you know newer just uh, approaches to scaling, as well as they have kind of full scripting languages that allow for more advanced um, more advanced smart contract logic, I'm more optimistic. But uh, on Bitcoin, based on my kind of current outlook, I'm I'm not. I don't see how huh. it's going to get done. All right. Well, let's talk about Ethereum quickly. What you know are some of the different solutions there, and what's your assessment of those? Yeah. So on Ethereum, there's a handful of solutions. Rollups are kind of a common one. Um, trying to think, what are the other ones? Sharding some... was another you mentioned in your blog post. Yeah, that's right. Sharding is the other big one. So 
uh, I'll kind of touch on sharding first. So, you know, ETH 2.0 is working on sharding. A lot of the new layer ones coming out are also working on sharding as well. And they have kind of their own flavors of sharding. Uh, and they have different nuances to how they, they do what they do. But the really big problem I have with sharding is that it's not clear that it actually helps in this specific situation where you have a lot of money needing to shuttle around in, in kind of much of what I'll call like random ways. Um, meaning you just have new random deposits and random withdrawal addresses. And so the reason that I'm concerned that it doesn't solve the problem is that in a sharded system, if you send the transaction from shard A to shard B, or like you send money, you know, and you need to go do a cross shard transaction, you end up doing a transaction on shard A and on shard B. Uh, and so when you do that, if you think about that, and then if, you, if 100% of the transactions are cross shard, then what you end up the net effect you end up getting is that the aggregate throughput of the system ends up approaching the the throughput of a single shard because every transaction takes up a second, you know, it takes up space on a second shard. And so that's really concerning because the, the because then you end up like, right, if, if, if people are shuttling money around to run these arbitrages and all these transactions end up being cross shard, then the whole, you're kind of defeating the whole purpose of sharding. And so I'm, I'm very concerned about that kind of happening. Obviously, in any of these cases, you would not end up with 100% of transactions being cross-shard, but certainly a meaningful percentage would be. And like, and that's going to be, again, during a time of volatility, a time when things are moving around. And so I, I, the idea that sharding is going to increase throughput by 10x, right, 50x, or 100x, I'm very skeptical. Like, that may be the case 90% of the time. But like the during the time when the systems are breaking and when everything is you know volatile and going crazy, that's when you need it to really you know maintain that throughput advantage. And during those moments of time is when I think that's going to really get tested in a really negative way. <laughs> it's terrible, but when you were talking, I realized that it reminded me of the hospital bed or ventilator issue with the coronavirus. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's the same problem. Um, <laughs> right. But anyway. When it's peacetime, everything is good. Like building systems to run during peacetime is easy. Like building systems to work during wartime is is really hard. Yeah. Well, and then, but what about optimistic rollups? Yeah. So optimistic rollups have a similar-ish problem where they, well, it's a couple of problems. So one is the, at least the vanilla implementation of optimistic rollups doesn't serve the latent, doesn't solve the latency issue uh, because you still rely on the underlying layer one blockchain for, um, for clearing transactions. So you increase throughput, but you don't increase uh, or you don't decrease latency. But the other problem basically is that if these exchanges end up using their own optimistic rollup chains, then you haven't really you're basically recreating the same thing as sharding, where you have to end up having tr- the same transaction on multiple chains or multiple optimistic ch- uh, optimistic rollup chains in order to produce the kind of same effects. And so, as I just think again, like I look at these exchanges, these guys don't coordinate on much of anything, and saying that hey, they're all going to agree to use the same optimistic rollup chain just seems to me to be very unlikely. Like they haven't done that in the past. You know, the technology is still new. These guys all seem to want to kind of like have control of their own systems. And, and so I just find it unlikely that all of these you know, players agree to use the same, the same optimistic roll of chain. Um, and, and if they don't, then you end up basically in kind of the same kind of sharding logic that I just walked through. Wow. All right. Well, so you kind of started to go into like how you think we could solve this issue. Um, and I know this is maybe more speculative or, you know, off the future, but why don't you go into that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, my favorite solutions to solve this problem, I think there's one interesting market structure solution, which is the introduction of prime brokers. Um, I think prime brokers really uh, help a lot because they basically allow you to have a single centralized entity off chain 
basically manage all the collateral across all the venues and allow the different funds and traders to do all the trading and then just net all that stuff out on some frequency kind of after the fact. Um, Prime Broker, you know, is very big business in traditional markets. Um, people like Prime Brokers. The, the challenge is that you, A, you need everyone to trust the, the same Prime Broker or Prime Brokers, uh, which in crypto today, there are no like single entity that everyone trusts. And then B, that entity needs to have like, a lot of capital because you need to be able to have enough capital to basically face all of your clients. Or so if you're a prime and let's say all of your clients have, you know, $5 billion collectively, you need to have at least $5 billion and probably a lot more in order to be effective prime broker. Um, and so that's been, that's been kind of a, a problem is that there aren't prime brokers. Um, I expect we will eventually have prime brokers. So Tagomi, for example, today is, is trying to do that. They're not there yet, but they're certainly moving in that direction. Uh, a handful of other players are trying to do something similar. The good thing about prime brokers is that they don't really change the market. They don't require a change in the market structure, right? You don't need to get the exchanges to agree on anything. Um, you don't need to introduce some new standards. Um, this can be very much like, you know, the, the exchanges want to do business with the trader, which in this case is the prime, and the traders want to, you know, have prime services. And so um, it's a very kind of organic evolution of the current market structure. So I'm, I'm optimistic that that will help mitigate this problem over time. Um, the other solution I'm, I'm really interested in is the introduction of new layer one assets. You know, Ethereum people have been talking about proof of stake and sharding and all these things for years. You know, for the last couple of years, you've seen a lot of really smart people say, hey, I have different ideas and different ideas on how to scale these systems. Um, and a lot of really smart people are working on scaling new layer ones. Um, of those, the one I'm kind of most interested in is called Solana. And they're, they're really the team focused on optimizing, uh, just a single shard of, uh, and to kind of maximize throughput in a single system. Um, so have most throughput and lowest latency in one shard. And the idea is, is that if you can actually do that, um, then, you know, all of these problems around throughput, you know, around moving money around, around low latency, all those things get just magically solved. You don't have to worry about new trust models, new security models, cross sharded transactions, like, just all these other things are just really untested um, and just introduce lots of new variables. And we just don't know how those things are going to actually work in the real world. Um, but we all know today with very high conviction that like you have a chain and it has assets on it and you shuttle, shuttle them around and exchanges, you know, take deposits and withdrawals. And like that market structure is very well understood by everyone in the market. Um, and so I like that, 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 that kind of approach uh, plugs into the current market structure very well. The downside of that approach is you need people to agree to use the new chain, which is you know, a non-trivial thing to do. <laughs> Definitely non-trivial, but it is still early days in crypto. So we'll see what happens. All right. Well, thank you so much for explaining all this craziness. It has been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unchained. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Kyle and Multicoin, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Some of you have heard the weekly crypto news recaps I read on Unconfirmed and have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned there. You can also get them delivered right to your inbox with my weekly newsletter, which comes out Fridays. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.